Welcome to the Not A Mommy Yet podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Fay. I started the Not A Mommy Yet blog and this podcast because I've always known I want to be a parent one day, and you might be listening because you feel the same. You may have also heard people with kids say things like, I wish I had known this before I had kids, or I wish I had done that. Hearing those comments made me think about the parts of my life I want to spend more time focusing on before I have kids in ways that will benefit me as a parent. So I started a list of people who can teach me about health, money, relationships, psychology, and more, and started interviewing them, and this podcast was born. Whether you plan to have kids or not, I think you'll find something interesting in this podcast for you. I hope you enjoy, subscribe, and maybe even share it with a friend. Thank you so much for listening. Today on the Not A Mommy Yet podcast, I am speaking with Dr. Inderpal Randhawa. Dr. Randhawa is a leading specialist in internal medicine, pediatrics, immunology, allergy medicine, and pulmonology with 15 years of experience. Dr. Randhawa is also the founder of the Southern California Food Allergy Institute, a nonprofit dedicated to providing innovative and safe treatment for the 6 million children in the United States who suffer from food allergies. His incredible algorithm and ever-growing database is putting people in remission from severe allergies, allowing them to eat all of the foods that used to be potentially fatal for them to even be around. He's a special person helping so many people, and I absolutely loved recording this episode. We get into so many subjects surrounding food allergies, from the physical to the emotional side effects, how foods are connected to each other in the development of certain allergies, which was so interesting, to his incredible database approach and how other illnesses such as IBS could be linked to food anaphylaxis. And of course, we spoke about pregnancy, breastfeeding, and newborns when it relates to doing what we can to prevent these allergies from developing in the first place. I learned so much in this episode, and... As someone who has only dealt with mild allergies and we're talking sneezing from dust or pollen, it was amazing to learn about what it can be like for people who suffer from severe food anaphylaxis. If I'm ever around a friend, a peer, a parent who is worried about an allergy they have or their child has, I will absolutely do my best to make myself aware and do whatever I can to keep them safe. Because if there's one thing I learned from this episode, it is that this is not something that anyone should have to deal with alone. I really hope you guys enjoyed this week's episode with Dr. Rantawa. Thank you so much for listening. Well, thank you, Dr. Rantawa, for being on the Not A Mommy Up podcast today. I really appreciate you being here. No, thank you. I think it's a a wonderful opportunity to talk to an audience of uh, folks who at some point anticipate becoming parents. Um, I always tell folks as a parent myself that, um, you know, your one goal is to you know, A, be prepared and B, mm-hmm. once you have kids, you know, kind of just do everything you possibly can to make sure they have the, you know, the the development and the opportunities as they grow up. Um, and when you talk about different diseases, as somebody who treats a lot of different childhood diseases, um, I see that, you know, all too often. Um, and I see the strain that it puts on on parents. And I think uh, just talking about it's really important for uh, the community as a whole. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as you know, I heard about you through one of your patients who gave me a, like an amended look, I guess, into your approach on how you help cure allergies and help people live with allergies beyond allergies. Um, and like you said, I'm excited to kind of get into this, especially for people who might not have ever dealt with this in their life. Like for example, my sister-in-law has a four-year-old, she has some light allergies she's dealt with, but he's having some more issues. So she's, this is like a whole new world to her too. So I'm excited to learn about all of this and get into it. So I would love to hear first quickly how kind of you got um, into this. Cause I, I think your background's in pulmonology, if that's correct. And then you kind of switched focus, um, focuses into this. So yeah. How did you get into all of this allergy <laughs> curing? <laughs> no, th- well, <laughs> thank you. I mean, I'm, you know, it is, uh, a, a unusual, I'd say in that sense. Um, I, uh, you know, got into medicine. Um, I went through some, uh, 
you know, personal experiences growing up. Uh, I was raised by, you know, a scientist, a veterinarian, you know, so we were taught to ask tons of questions. Um, and then, you know, as I kind of got into medicine and finally went down the world uh, that I, I, I was comfortable in, which is um, solid organ transplants and, and immune system disorders, and particularly lung diseases. Um, you know, I was very comfortable being uh, the, the last guy in line, you know, when somebody else is had this problem, that problem. And, and, you know, when, when you're, you are the last person they go to, it's a pretty serious job. So uh, I started out a lot of my work in my career was in that space. Um, and I found it very interesting and useful, but I also found that, um, all too often it didn't get the best results. Uh, you know, you, you want to do the best you can for patients and it didn't get the absolute best results. But what I learned from that was the way we approached complex things like transplants is we use a lot of data, a lot of information. And we look at that data in, in all different angles. And that gets us some uniquely good results sometimes. Um, and in, you know, to be honest, the, the area of food allergies, food anaphylaxis, um, I don't have it. I frankly probably knew very few people growing up who had it. I have three kids. They don't have it. Uh, and, and I had no interest in it, none whatsoever. Uh, I, I, it came to me in the ICU. It came to me in the hospital setting. It came to me in the, in the worst of experiences, uh, seeing kids who were otherwise, you know, totally fine. And 10 minutes later, they're in a really, really dangerous place. Um, and that's something you don't see a lot in medicine, to be frank. Um, you see it in, in trauma. You'll see it in a major vehicle accident, something of that nature, you know. And obviously, that's a horrific thing to go through. But when you don't see that type of trauma, but a child just ate a you know, small amount of a dish that they thought was safe. And now they're in the ICU and it's a dangerous situation. You can only see that a few times before it really starts to bother you. Yeah. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. I mean, to think that, yeah, you don't even know what you're eating could have one ingredient that you're allergic to, and then could put you into such a dire situation. So, so then once you got kind of decided to like switch focus, I guess, into this more heavily, how have you developed your approach? And if you can kind of like go into that a little bit for people to understand, you know, why your practice has grown so incredibly over the past few years of people coming all over the world to see you. Yeah. Uh, you know, what I did is I looked at, at the disease, um, being food anaphylaxis. And, and, and the first question I asked was, um, how does this happen? Um, you know, uh, how much, food protein exposure can cause what amount of anaphylaxis? And believe it or not, those kind of questions weren't really ever asked. Um, you know, they just kind of labeled it as something, gave people an EpiPen and, and said, go on your way. Right. Once I understood that part, um, I realized that no matter how good you are at stopping a reaction, um, there will be reactions that you can't stop. And in those cases where there are what are called EpiPen failures, um, you know, that's th that was a bit of an eye opener for me where I said, well, even even that is not going to you know really solve this problem. So therefore, um, as I do often, I go upstream. I try to go higher up in the disease state. And in that case, I started studying the immune system and I started studying the actual foods themselves. So, you know, again, I'm not a person who has any sort of uh, botanical background or, you know, plant biology background. But I started picking up those books and those journals, and I started studying and asking questions. Um, and fundamentally, I came up with two very large databases, uh, one being of plant proteins. And this is, this is down to amino acid sequences, and found that there were a lot of similarities between proteins that existed in nature. And those things, if they were exposed incorrectly, could make somebody much worse. They could make somebody who is mildly anaphylactic to peanuts and over enough exposures could actually make them worse, even though that food is not a peanut. So for I'll give you an example. Uh, a child could be eating almonds thinking that it's totally fine, and I, they feel totally fine when they eat almonds. But one of those specific profilin proteins in almonds is cross-stimulating your immune system to not like peanut at all. And then your peanut numbers go up. And so you know, I started gathering this type of data, and then I started gathering large, large uh, sets of immunological data, immune system numbers across all different age groups. And you know, around 2007, um, I realized that you know, I think there was a there there were signals, there were patterns that made sense, um, and, and I started designing algorithms, and I started getting to a point where I really knew I had to build databases. Um, and you know, fast forward, you know. 
these many years later, we're, we run about 300 million rows of data a second, 300 million rows of data a second to treat our patients here uh, across large numbers of softwares, uh, much of which we write and, and build and code on our own. So we have taken a disease that could take a child's life and utilized very advanced technology, very advanced um, applied math and machine learning AI, and a lot of natural proteins to actually get very close to turning the switch off. Um, and what that means is patients who are once, you know, really, uh, you know, again, grossly anaphylactic numbers that are at a hundred or higher on typical scales can eat any amount of that food without restriction. And that's a game changer. Absolutely. That's incredible. Um, I mean, just the amount of data alone that you're collecting, I'm sure that just strengthens your protocol and your approach like by the second as well. Um, so, so then what, like when a patient comes to you, let's say with a peanut allergy, do you test them for all the allergies across the spectrum and just kind of get a full, like, even if that's the only one they're aware of. And then once you kind of know, um, so your patient who I spoke with kind of told me a little bit about her daughter's protocol, having small amounts of multiple things twice a day and just kind of, kind of, you can like talk us through a little bit about that. I'm sure it's different somewhat to with every patient, but kind of how that works. Absolutely. Right. Um, you know, so, you know, I, I always tell folks that the, the first thing you have to recognize is either you believe that plant proteins and animal proteins are related or you don't. Um, if you believe they're related, then you have to ask yourself, well, how do they influence the immune system of single individuals who are prone to anaphylaxis? Um, and so uh, every single patient comes in, we draw the same 400 markers on every single patient. That's 400 plus tests on every patient. And, and you brought up a great point. There are some patients who come in who are, are, are truly only anaphylactic to one food. But interestingly, that's only approximately six to seven percent of patients. So, you know, we in, in the world of big data, you must run what's called clean and equivocal data. It has to be the same across everything because you don't want to run into bias when you're you want to actually run your numbers in a way that it gives you the same reproducible results. So we run the same numbers on every single person and that's you know a, a cost but I think it's extremely important. Once we have that data back, we can actually cross match their system uh, to a very high degree of accuracy and we can then predict how to train their immune system essentially down and out of that anaphylactic state. So for example, if someone's anaphylactic to peanuts, um, let's say they're anaphylactic to peanuts and uh, walnuts and pecans or something of that nature, we will study all of those proteins ac across different species, including animal proteins. And anything that is forecasted at a level of risk is actually plotted out. We literally give patients a snapshot. That's the AI triggering their level of risk. Um, and we then start our work. And our work is looking at peanut, not as a peanut, but looking at peanut as a series of 17 identified proteins. Uh, of those 17, we can often cross-match six, seven, eight, nine, depending on you know each individual's patient's response. And we can find the right protein in nature. Maybe it's a grain, it might be a legume, it might be another tree nut, but we know how much protein it will take to cross match and shut down the immune response to that part of the peanut. And what that means is we're doing this work for six to nine months, and then we repeat all of our markers. We, we It's all done, you know, again, uh, by math, and we repeat all of that lab work again. And now their peanut numbers are reduced 40%, 60%, 70% without ever giving them a peanut, right? So by cross-matching, we can basically train their immune system to ignore the response to peanut, reducing their numbers dramatically without ever giving them a peanut. Now we're ready to start giving them peanuts and we can go very quickly and we can get to large amounts of peanuts. Uh, at the end of the first phase of, of the peanut side of treatment, they're eating uh, approximately 10 grams of protein, which is about 32 to 33 peanuts in a matter of just a few minutes. When they hit their first remission visit, they're eating 30 grams of protein, about 75 peanuts, which is, again, is a large amount of peanuts to eat in a matter of just a few minutes, and they pass, and they're good to go. That's amazing. And then they're good forever. 
Well, so in order to keep an immune system in remission, and you know, I, I, I know you used the word uh, cured earlier. I, I, I hesitate to use that word because in modern yeah. medicine, we have very few cures. Now, if you yeah. talk to our patients, if you talk to your friend, uh, you know, they will say that word. And by all means, it's up to them to use that word. But you know, for us, it's remission. And you know, remission is certainly great. Um, these patients have to eat um, a certain amount of pre-calculated uh, peanut in natural food format once a week. Uh, and they don't have to eat very many other foods uh, in addition to that. The rest of the time, they can eat whatever they want. They don't have to eat peanuts, but if they want to eat a peanut butter jelly sandwich, they want to eat Thai food, whatever else they choose, there's no, no restrictions on that. We see them back in one year, repeat the same molecular markers again. We can continue to track their data. Again, this is one-to-one. -one. And as they continue to drive into deeper states of remission, uh, we move those cycles of exposure to every two weeks, three weeks, and four weeks. Um, so our patients who are out four years or so, they're often on a once every three to four week cycle of exposure. And the beautiful thing of that is parents, you know, who are just worried, sick about these kids at the beginning of the program can now send their kids off to college. You know, maybe they're off, you know, in the, right. in the job force. Um, and the truth is, if you are a non-allergic person, the average child is eating peanut products about 10 and a half to 11 times a week. Right. So yeah, that's the average American kid eats that much peanut product. That means a sandwich, a cookie, a, you know, et cetera. The average American kid eats uh, a tree nut product about four and a half to five times a week right now. They're eating seed based products about three to four times a week. Milk, animal protein products are still more than once a day. So, you know, the reality is if you put a child who's been in this program back into that world, the, the native diet of just socializing will continue to keep them in a state of nice remission uh, for the rest of their life. That's incredible. God, to know that that number is so high, I can see why parents who do have children with severe peanut allergies to be so <laughs> scared all the time about, you know, what's in their kids' food and what's around their children. Um, so starting with babies, how soon... I guess I have kind of a two-part question. How soon can you test babies for allergies? And then also can an allergy, I mean, I guess I know the answer to this. I can develop an allergy, right? So like kind of how that works with kids. Cause I've seen like my nephew, for example, he could eat eggs and then he couldn't eat eggs. Like that kind of stuff can happen. That happened with me with shellfish. And then it only was for like a year. I couldn't eat shellfish and then I was fine. So kind of how soon can you test babies and how, can you prepare, I guess, for those moments where all of a sudden they're allergic to something? Um, maybe I'll answer both questions by talking about a common uh, phrase that I often hear. Um, I hear the phrase um, outgrow, you know, my, maybe my child will outgrow their allergy. Um, I, I always hesitate to use that word because, you know, that's just an odd thing to say. Um, you know, it's like saying you're going to um, outgrow um you know, lupus or outgrow multiple sclerosis, right? Um, outgrow has this idea that somehow as you physically grow, that your your disease state just goes away. Um, and, and that's a real hard sell, you know, but it's a term that's commonly used in food allergies. So, you know, the, the reason I bring that up is because I don't believe anybody outgrows anything. Um, you are partially genetically predetermined, you're partially environmentally triggered, and you're partially immu immunologically educated to either be allergic or non-allergic. You only have two choices. If you're non-allergic, which is, a, you know, we don't quite understand, but we do believe it's about half the global population is non-allergic. That means they're not going to have allergies to anything, not to medication, not to a bee sting, not to anything. And, and likely is they will be like that their whole life. The other half of the population is at risk. Now, they can maybe develop just allergies in their nose, hay fever. They can develop allergies in their lungs, asthma, allergies in their skin, eczema, uh, bee sting allergies, or a penicillin allergy. But some percentage of those patients who are at risk develop near-fatal food anaphylaxis. And so, what is it that makes them do that, right? So, I think it's important to understand that, first of all, it's not an outgrow thing. It's kind of this, it's kind of either you're allergic or you're non-allergic. Okay. If you're a child, if you're a baby and you're, you know, uh, one or two months old, their diet is heavily restricted. 
hopefully they're just nursing. And if they're nursing, uh, their uh, mother's diet plays a role. And so the exposure of the mother's proteins in breast milk to the baby starts to immediately uh, educate the immune system. And so we can often test babies as young as three months of age with a moderate degree of accuracy. And I say moderate because their immune system, remember when we measure allergies, we're often measuring the immune system's response to an allergen. And so we have to watch that very carefully. By six months of age, you start to get the child's immunity built up where you can actually get something much more accurate. By 12 months of age, you're in a pretty good spot where you can get some good accuracy. So that, you know, early, early on, it's certainly very difficult to get, um, I'd say, the highest level of accuracy. But what this tells you is that the immune system is in a state of flux. It's constantly just trying to decide, should I be okay with this protein? Should I not be okay with this protein? And this is where the biosimilar aspect of proteins is really important, right? If you're giving a child at a very young age an excessive amount of uh, green peas, right, which is a legume, um, and, you know, you do that and maybe the child just loves green peas. So you give them an excessive amount of that. Um, and then you decide to stop because, you know, maybe the child didn't like it or maybe you thought it was too much. Um, and then you don't give them the green peas again for six months and then you give it to them. And now they develop this red rash around their mouth. All of a sudden, you know, what occurred there is you that heavy exposure early sensitized the system the gap of time of non-exposure allowed the immune system to be educated down an allergic pathway. The re-exposure woke the system back up. Now, the next time you give that child green peas, you might see hives, right? And so what seemed to be something they tolerated in the past and now they don't tolerate often is that type of story. It's a large amount of exposure or a large amount of biosimilars, a gap of time of non-exposure, a re-exposure, and now we're in a in a state of flux again, and that can be difficult. So would you suggest that when you start to introduce solids to babies that you find a balance in what they eat, that you that you don't focus so heavily on one type of food or another to avoid these like large ebbs and flows of the actual food they're getting? Yeah, I think it's, it, you know, what I learned in this process um, is really based on on evolutionary biology. Um, humans for the you know hundred thousand years that we've been on this planet, uh, their diet has been relatively consistent across uh, three kingdoms, but primarily two: uh, animal, plant kingdom, uh, fungus, and and mushrooms and such could also be thrown in there. Uh, but the main point of this is that. The, the concept of elimination diets, you know, these, you know, and again, I'm not, I'm not saying, I want to be clear, I'm not saying eating wheat all the time is a good thing. I don't think it's a good thing. But should you completely eliminate all forms of wheat in your diet? I don't think that's wise, especially if you're in the 50% of the population that is at risk of allergies. Uh, because, you know, what is the closest relative to wheat? Uh, grass, right? And so we have grass everywhere on this planet. Uh, we're inhaling grass pollen all the time. And even that exposure through the nose and through the mouth of what you inhale and you touch creates a set of relationships. Those relationships, if you suddenly go gluten-free and then you don't eat wheat for you know one or two years and you're at risk, you upon re-exposure, it's stomach aches. Then it's re-exposure and now my throat gets itchy when I eat wheat. And you understand okay. what happens from there. Okay, yeah. So I wanna I wanna come back to this like elimination diet. Cause I did this with dairy for my skin, but I want to just stay on the baby and pregnancy thing for a second. Um, so what have you found for pregnancy diets and breastfeeding diets that can either, that can help educate the immune system in the baby to encourage, I guess, uh, no allergies or, uh, you know, a, like a better outcome for the baby. <laughs> I, I think that's probably the better way to look at it is what gives yeah. you the best outcome. You, you know, a lot of uh, institutions, universities around the globe have put a lot of effort into this question, you know, um, uh, during early pregnancy, during late pregnancy, during nursing, uh, you know, can you modify the diet? Can you add probiotics? Can you add prebiotics? What? And, and in the end, the, the final conclusion is there is no significant difference. You cannot tell what is a big enough impact. Um, and, you know, and, and in, you know, 
to, to be clear, you know, I have not studied, uh, you know, pregnant women per se or in nursing mothers per se. All I can tell you is we capture the data of their children uh, at a very young age and we have it across, you know, 10, over 10,000 patients now. What we see from that is you pretty much have only two choices. Remember that the placenta uh, and the blood flow of the placenta is the key nutritional um, you know, aspect and the key nutritional highway for a developing uh, embryo. And so there is a point in time where the immune system becomes much more important. So that seems to be around uh, the 13th to 15th week of gestation. So relatively at the end of the first trimester. In the first trimester, it probably doesn't make a big difference what a mom eats. But in the second and third trimester, there is some early influence that is occurring. So at that stage, either you eat some of every major food group on a regular basis uh, you know, that could be once a week for very difficult to digest proteins, things like fish, uh, which again has its own limitations on how much you can eat during pregnancy. But, you know, that's a fair point. Uh, and for more common plant proteins could be done three to four times per week. Now, if you can be really, you know, judicious about doing this on a regular basis for the rest of that pregnancy, you probably done something very good for your child. Now, if you cannot do that, you know, maybe you have morning sickness or other complications of pregnancy, um, it becomes a more complicated question, right? And I think there you have to decide, okay, maybe I reduce and eliminate animal proteins, maybe I reduce and eliminate certain plant proteins. But as soon as the baby has been delivered and you are now nursing, you have to use the same approach again. So it is very important to cover every you know, primary plant group as far as species, every primary animal protein as far as those species at the proper frequency to see the best potential outcome. And even then, if you do it right, there is still the possibility that uh, in the first year to two years of life, um, if a child's immune system decides to get sick with a virus, for example, uh, or if a child's immune system decides to become heavily allergic to dust mites or pollen or other types of things, where you may derail some of those benefits, but you will not lose all of them. So I think that's really the the message is, you know, either you kind of go all the way or you really kind of uh, eliminate class categories so that your child's immune system has the best chance for a good outcome. Got it. Okay. That's very interesting. So yeah. So for myself, for example, um, I stopped eating dairy about seven years ago and I've never like missed it. Um, I've been able to eat goat cheese a little bit and sometimes I'll have like a bite of ice cream. I've never eliminated butter though, or cooked products with dairy, like pastries or cakes, things like that. Um, so I guess maybe I am hopefully eating a little bit here and there. I don't know. But, um, so let's say when I'm pregnant, how do I reintroduce dairy if I've eliminated it pretty much like any like raw dairy? Yeah, or, I, mean, I don't know if it's raw, but ice cream, cream cheese, like, you know, milk. Yeah. Um, so milk has uh, uh, 23, you know, major protein groups. Um, you know, a lot of people just kind of identify them as casein or whey, but there's more than that. Um, the most dense and, and kind of comprehensive form of milk, animal milk is cow milk. Um, and so if you, if you eat goat milk instead of cow's milk, uh, you're losing around 25% of the proteins. Um, so, you know, these are some of the, the give and take. I think the first question for you would be, okay, well, if you go ahead and reintroduce, um, A, hopefully you don't have, um, you know, a, an allergic sensitization model that has been built up where you start to have problems. Doesn't sound like it. Remember that certain proteins, uh, including uh, egg whites um, and including milk, require certain digestive enzymes to be really, you know, absorbed appropriately. So sometimes if you never haven't eaten milk in five years and you suddenly drink some milk, you could feel stomach upset. You could feel some GI upset. But assuming you get past all of that, um, what I recommend is what are called ultra-filtered products. Um, so ultra-filtered milks, ultra-filtered products are out there. Uh, there's five or six brands on the market that have been out for a while. These products, uh, 
you know, products uh, like Horizon makes a product, uh, uh, Fairlife is a product. These things, if you if you take uh, one to two ounces of that, uh, it's often the equivalent of a full serving of of cow's milk. And so it's ultra filtered. It's really just the proteins that count, um, and you don't have to drink or or have a lot of the other uh, aspects of what is in cow's milk. How much, how often is really kind of dependent on people's individual, uh, you know, immune system responses. Uh, again, if you look at evolutionary biology, you're probably looking at, you know, at least one to two servings a week. So those types of re-exposure rates with the right type of product um, will gen- generally have a good outcome. Okay. So theoretically, yeah, if I, if I don't respond negatively, I could have one to two teaspoons a day, every other day, kind of whatever I, of those sort of ultra filtered brands that you mentioned. Okay, that's interesting. So I saw a post recently on social media that that was this woman and she was kind of playing the part of every part of the body that's involved in digestion. It's like the brain and she's like jumping in the car, she's just eating food and then she starts to get into this role of the stomach like, "Oh, I wasn't prepared to eat. I didn't have the stomach acids I needed." Oh, and then the intestines weren't prepared. It's like the brain wasn't prepared. You know, and that's very common in our culture today where I'm just like we run in, we grab a bite of whatever we can there was no real forethought of like, this, this is what we're going to do. Um, so, and she's like, and, and at the end of the day, we end up blaming the cheese we ate or the bread we ate because our body had a negative reaction, but actually our body just wasn't prepared to digest any food. Um, so I kind of wanted to t- talk to you about that because also, and maybe relate that to celiacs a little bit, if that is even related, but you said, you know, with gluten intolerance and there's grass. So like can celiacs get inflamed from being around grass? You know, how is this all connected? I know that was like a long-winded yeah. kind of no, question, I, but I'm just curious how that all works together. No, I think you, um, you bring up a great point. So just look at it from a total number of immune cells, right? The most number of immune cells, you know, white blood cells in your body are in your bone marrow, but very close to that, uh, pretty much equivocal, and most people is your gut. So literally, your gut has as many immune cells as your bone marrow. Mm-hmm. Number three, just a little bit further down the list, is your lung. So what you breathe and what you eat are your two greatest, great two greatest factors that influence your immune system. What you breathe and what you eat. Um, the the gut clearly has an ability to process and understand things from an immune system standpoint that if it's not in a good state, you know, the basics of human needs are food, shelter, water, homeostasis, four things. Uh, Homeostasis, you know, just physiologically speaking, means that the gut is knows when to turn on, knows what to turn on, and knows when to rest. And fundamentally, if you look at cases where that is not the case, and maybe you take an extreme case like Crohn's disease or other types of inflammatory bowel disease. Interestingly enough, those patients are also at risk of developing food anaphylaxis. Now, those aren't directly related pathways, but clearly you have an insult and injury model in your gut that has led to another state. Um, We have seen, uh, even in our program, we have a a probably about uh, 30 to 40 patients who we had to diagnose with celiac disease uh, who happen to have anaphylaxis to some other food. Uh, it's not typically wheat. Um, we have a couple examples maybe where wheat is an issue, but the majority are not. So, and, and I want to be clear, um, anaphylaxis is, is one clear pathway of hypersensitivity. The immune system can do a lot of things incorrectly, and that can cause inflammatory bowel disease like Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. It can also cause other types of problems like celiac disease. And these are uniquely different pathways. Um, you know, what causes those things and, and how to reduce risk factors and how much of it is genetics uh, is, is a complicated question, which, you know, honestly, we could have a, we could talk about for hours. Uh, but I do think gut health and, you know, keeping a gut happy is very important. We've learned that in this program. Uh, you know, our patients, if they have, if they're not hydrating effectively, if they're constipated on a regular basis, if they have acid reflux, um, if they're not having proper gut motility, the gut's not moving in an effective and normal fashion, which means, yes, you have to actually walk around and exercise and eat normal sized meals and, you know, and, and so on and so forth. They, those things have a dramatic impact. If, if they're in that situation and they get exposed to a food protein, their anaphylactic reaction is much, much worse. So I do think there is, uh, you know, there, there's validation to that approach. What is the 
precise way to measure those things or what's the best way to approach what is defined as a healthy gut, I think we have a lot of work to do on that still. Very interesting. So would it make sense for someone, let's say with IBS to come to you to be tested for like allergies to figure out ways that they can kind of, or is that kind of the wrong direction of how to do it Would that? Cause I don't think that would ever occur to anyone with someone who has gut inflammation or gut issues to go see an allergy doctor about, you know, how this can all be connected because a lot of the time, and you see this in women's health, you know, when we're diagnosed with PCOS or endometriosis, the reason why it takes so long is because our symptoms range across multiple professions, like who we would go to see to treat those symptoms. You know, we go to a dermatologist for acne, or we would go to a general or an OB for cramps, but they're not talking to each other. So I'm just curious if there's a way to connect this for people listening who might have gut inflammatory issues to consider allergies as maybe something related to that. Yeah. Um, I will commonly, um, you know, explain the immune system to um, folks and say, you know, we have this idea when we hear this term immune system. And then, you know, what we don't, what we don't think about is an immune system is kind of orbiting. It's, it's, it's moving, it's adapting on a day by day basis. There are certain cells that we're born with that we actually have for decades of our life. I mean, there are some very long-lived cells in the immune system. So if an immune system is really in its most favorable state, it's in a state of balance. It understands when it should be active and when it should be calm, when it should promote wound healing and when it should stop, when should it, when should it turn over tissue or when should it not. However, if you take that immune system and under certain states of stress, and that could be physical stress, it could be mental stress, it could be environmental stress, it could be other things disease-wise, you can move that immune system now into a state of autoimmunity. So an immune system that was nice and healthy now is attacking itself. And now you have Crohn's disease or you have ulcerative colitis, you have microscopic colitis, et cetera. You can take that same immune system and it can become immunodeficient. It can actually become suppressed. So now you have an immune deficiency where you get sick all the time. You have other types of uh, hormone access problems. You have other types of disease states that are making you quite ill. That same immune system can also become highly allergic. And it could become anaphylactic. That's certainly, you know, the, the program that we built here. And then that same immune system can also become oncologic. It could become cancerous. So, you know, it's not that the system is really, you know, in one spot and it just stays there. It's constantly in the state of trying to determine where is the best uh, you know, response to its current environment or its current state of affairs. So I think it's important that we recognize that. Um, IBS. Uh, irritable bowel syndrome to me is kind of a wastebasket, you know, kind of diagnosis. It means that nobody knows what it is and, you know, we'll just call it something. It's like, it's, yeah, it's like fibromyalgia, you know, it's like, yeah, we don't know what it is. You're in some degree of pain and we'll just call it something. Um, And that's unfortunate. And, you know, in in healthcare and in medicine, you know, we try to classically put everything in one bucket. Um, You know, I, of course, you know, move away from that. Uh, I, I believe that we should be looking at large amounts of data so we can understand comprehensively how systems operate and then take that data and understand how we can use it towards a therapeutic process. Um, IBS often is the case that, you know, some of it may be how fast your gut moves. Some of it certainly could be low level allergic responses. Some of it could be that shift up towards autoimmunity and some of it could be an immune deficiency. Uh, One of the most common diagnoses uh, that we make uh, for our patients who have low functioning immune systems is called SIBO, S-I-B-O, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth syndrome, classic uh, association with frequent random types of abdominal pain, different types of GI uh, bowel movements, et cetera. And amazing how how often that's not even looked at as a diagnosis. And yet it has a very clear uh, course of treatment. It's highly effective. It can get people back into a good spot. But unfortunately, as you mentioned, uh, these patients end up going to see a GI doctor. They may or may not see an allergist. They tend to maybe go see a nutritionist, and then they go on an elimination diet. And now, they stop eating all these things. And the bottom line is, look, if you ever want to feel good, yeah, you can, you know, basically eat the, the easiest to digest, partial starches, a lot of water, and you'll feel great. But that's not good for you nutritionally, and it's not good for you from an allergy standpoint. So you go on an elimination diet, you feel good for three months, and then you start eating foods back. And it's, you know, that's where we see cases where people start getting hives and they start to develop that allergic cascade, and now they're in big trouble. Um, yeah. So an elimination diet is like 
the last thing you kind of want to do. It sounds like, um, I mean, your approach definitely makes more sense than doing anything like that to figure out what you're allergic to or what's causing the issues. Um, what has been, what is the most treatable allergy? What is the most dangerous allergy is if, if that's even a thing. And then also when people first, come into contact, like if they find out they have an allergy or their child is reacting, what do you want them to know in that moment of how to handle the situation, but then also educate themselves maybe afterwards or hopefully before, like for this podcast, for example, just what do you want people to know about? Um, Well, I'd say, you know, first, you know, regarding, um, you know, parents who kind of get a new diagnosis or they have a diagnosis, um, you know, the, the good news is that, you know, uh, most people who have an allergic reaction know their diagnosis, right? I mean, the vast majority of them, they, they have a peanut allergy. If they have an, an accidental exposure, it's peanuts. Um, it is really, really uncommon to not have a diagnosis and to have sudden anaphylaxis. It's possible, but it's uncommon. So, you know, if you're in a situation where you have a reaction um, and, you know, is there one that's particularly worse than the other? I wouldn't look at it from that standpoint. Um, you know, I've had patients who have, uh, you know, pumpkin seed anaphylaxis that is absolutely off the charts. Um, and, you know, I have patients with milk anaphylaxis that's also off the charts. However, what is more common in, in the environment, right? What's more common in the grocery stores and restaurants? Milk allergy is a real big problem. Um, I'd say in the last year to year and a half, the number of primary milk anaphylactic patients, meaning they could have other allergies too, but milk is their worst allergen in our program here has uh, over doubled uh, because these, you know, they're realizing that, you know, the doctors will say, oh, you're going to outgrow this allergy, which we talked about. Um, and next, you know, their kids five, six, eight, 10 years old, and they're severely anaphylactic to milk. Um, obviously, we can treat them and, you know, we have good outcomes. But the reality is that, you know, interesting that milk is suddenly becoming this much more common, chronic and severe anaphylactic state. Um, to answer your question about, you know, reactions, it is, it, you know, it's basic stuff. Um, if you're not comfortable using an EpiPen, you got to talk to your doctor and you got to find a way to get comfortable uh, because it is still the most important thing that's out there. Um, you should have it with you. You should have one that's updated, not expired. If a reaction's happening and you're getting nervous, you're not sure what to do, call help, call for help. You know, one of the great things we offer at this program is 24-7 on-call support, like literally an entire call center of medical staff just for our patients. Now, the good news is our patients, as they go through treatment, aren't having a significant number of problems, but they do get accidental exposures. And I, I can't tell you how many times parents will say, we just appreciate having that kind of backup. They can just call us and boom, we're right there to guide them through what's going on. But in case, you know, you don't have that, uh, let somebody else know nearby what's going on. You know, getting people alerted to what's going on and not trying to hope it's just going to get better. Uh, I think those are some very key points. You know, uh, no reason to be a hero, you know, or don't try to be, you know, somebody who's going to, you know, you know, try to control the whole situation. Uh, one last little point. Uh, whatever you do after an anaphylactic reaction or during an uh, allergic reaction, don't run. Don't run. Don't get your heart rate up. Don't get your blood pressure in a state where it can be very dynamic. Uh, the worst thing you can do, the classic story I always tell folks is, you know, if you have anaphylaxis to say um, shellfish, as you just mentioned, um, you know, I'm a 23-year-old and I, you know, uh, got my first job out of internship, um, and I'm, you know, the company has a, a an outing, and you know, you're the junior person, and you're going there, and it's it's at a, a restaurant that has seafood. You know, wh- the first thing that you do is you don't want to make an announcement, you don't want to make a big deal of the whole thing, so you basically say, I already had dinner. You know, oh no, no, come on in, just you know, and maybe it's a few drinks or maybe other things happen, but you know, bottom line is some amount of that food protein can get in your system. Maybe it's through inhalation, maybe it's through touching something, and you start to feel sick, but you don't want to make big scenes. So you go to the bathroom, talk to any adult who has food anaphylaxis, they will tell you very commonly they will try to make themselves throw up. That's what they do to try to clear that reaction. That's not good. That triggers your autonomic system. Then they realize they're in big trouble. They don't have their EpiPen on them. Then they go run 
to the nearest pharmacy to rapidly purchase Benadryl, and they try to drink Benadryl to try and control the situation, only to be eight to 10 minutes out, and now their blood pressure's in a dangerous place. They hypercirculated the allergen around their system, and now they're on the floor while somebody else is calling 911, and now we have a real serious situation. So what I just described is a common phenomenon, and at least pre-COVID, you know, we had about 50 fatal events a month like that in this country. Uh, because of food anaphylaxis. So yeah, it's it's not a it's such a serious problem. I mean, if that's all I can call attention to, uh, I that's my number one goal. Um, obviously, our our other main goal here is to treat patients so we can remove that risk of anaphylaxis and give them back a you know a normal, safe lifestyle. Absolutely. That's so scary that that is the reality for so many people and that they don't feel the comfort, I guess, of the people around them to, you know, explain what they're going through and what's going on. And, and obviously, yeah, I have heard the stories of people being like, oh, that parent who's so obsessed with the allergy, it's like so annoying, but it's so serious. It's not something to be, you know, ignored or joked about at all. And, um, I guess, have you, do you treat like older patients? Do people, older, like older in life, have they just kind of been living with it or live, live, try like in fear, eliminating it from their life. And then they come to you finally, and they're set free. Or do you like, I'm sure you have a lot of children who are patients, but what is the age range of your patients? Uh, Well, you know, so when I, when I started this program, I did um, start with about uh, 40 to 45 adults, as well as a large number of children. So many years back over a decade ago. Um, But you know, I'm a bit of a utilitarian and, and I always felt like, you know, look, if I can, I found that adults kind of found a way to manage things a bit differently. I didn't think it was particularly good, but they found a way to manage. Um, and I found that the immune system of young individuals was likely much more malleable um, and something we could work with. Uh, and to be frank, um, a lot of our uh, of my initial funding uh, that I put in and others put into this pro to build this program, we focused on kids. Um, and since the database is that of young people, and it is age, uh, you know, kind of related, uh, that that is kind of what we put our attention to, six months to 21 years of age. However, we have a lot of patients who start at 21 and 364 days, <laughs> barely making the cutoff. So we have patients who are here 24 or 25 as they finish. Um, and we are now in the early phases of reopening some of the adult aspects to recollect and rebuild a new system as far as data is concerned. So I think I'm quite, I'm quite certain we'll get there. Um, it's just a question of, um, you know, we have, we have a lot of work ahead of us and, uh, you know, just, just trying to, we always got to get it done right. That's key. Of course. Well, thank you so much. This was an incredible conversation. I know I learned so much and I know everyone who listens to this episode will, <laughs> their eyes will be opened. Um, but I just asked three questions to all my guests that I'd love to ask you. And the first one is, do you have a mantra or words that you like to live by maybe on a daily basis, something that inspires you? Uh, Yeah. I mean, you know, I treat a lot of people with chronic disease, um, you know, all kinds. uh, And and some are, I mean, most are severe. Um, and, And I often wonder, you know, when I see them, you know, what is it that makes them tick? You know, what allows them to get to the next day and and, and push? Um, And the word there is um, survivorship. You know, you've got to find a way to survive. Uh, Nobody, nobody talks about victims of cancer. They talk about survivors of cancer. Uh, That's something that I think should extend further to uh, colleagues, peers, communities, um, you know, this, the, the isolation of food anaphylaxis is something I never understood until I got deep into this. Um, I mean, as you described, you know, yes, that parent may be annoying, but guess what? She probably has no friends either. Uh, because nobody wants to have that child over to their house. Nobody wants to have a play date because it's isolating. And when you take isolation to humans, as we've seen in this pandemic, it can do some pretty difficult things. So I think, you know, finding your own survivorship is key and really advocating, you know, really for for everyone around you, even if you don't have that medical condition, um, it's the right human thing to do. Of course. Yes. Um, and then the second one is if I know you have children, so what has um, helped you, you know, it takes a village to raise kids. What do you value most in the community that supported you and your, um, you know, yours as a parent? Um, you know, I think one thing that I learned, I have three kids, uh, 13 and, and I have seven-year-old twins. 
Um, very early on, I realized that there are so many people who want to help you get it right for your kids. That could be at school. That could be other parents. Uh, could be, you know, at your, you know, uh, religious establishment, whatever it may be. But you also have to know what you ultimately own, right? And, you know, you can spend all the money you want on your kid doing all kinds of uh, extracurriculars or private school or tutor. But in the end, it's on you as a parent, as a mom and a dad, my wife and I, you know, it's like it is, there's a, it's a word of sacrifice. You know, you have to sacrifice for your kids. They will remember it. They will remember it for a long time and they will likely do it for others. Um, but I think, you know, what, what, what our community has done uh, is is understand and build upon a shared sacrifice model. And in this day and age of, of heavily divided social media, uh, you know, it's important that we get back to something like that because what it does is it produces happy kids. Yeah, I love that. No one's ever answered anything like that on the podcast. So that's a great answer. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and then finally, what qualities do you really admire and are working to instill in your children? Oh, man. Um, I, I always tell them the same two things. I said, you know, um, uh, you know, have a big heart uh, and be generous. Um, that's it, you know, because uh, it's just that simple. If you have a big heart, you know, look, the world's a tough place. It's not always going to go your way. Uh, but you have a big heart uh, because, you know, you're you're part of a long chain of, of everyone else. And, you know, when your time is up, uh, they're all going to remember, you know, what you did and how you did it. And that's a key concept. And obviously, generosity, I think, is key. Um, you know, I think we can all, all everybody could be more generous. Absolutely. It's amazing. Well, thank you again. Um, if you can please share where people can connect with you and find you, I'll include links to any products or websites that you mentioned in our conversation in the podcast notes. But yeah, if you can let people know how they can connect with you, that would be great. Absolutely. No, thank you. It's been great. Um, I think what you're doing here, uh, you know, getting people ready for uh, parenthood isn't uh, is really important. And I think if, if I can help in, in any way, and I think contribute to what you're doing, I, I, I really appreciate it. Our website for food allergy is socalfoodallergy.org. Um, it's part of a larger uh, nonprofit organization. Um, so, you know, people can check it out. We're also on social media uh, and, you know, watch us grow. Uh, we have more things coming for everyone. And for anybody who's got a recent diagnosis of food anaphylaxis, uh, have hope. Um, you know, because, you know, our system is out there and we're able to produce some really amazing results and, you know, let us uh, continue to grow and uh, keep your children safe. So uh, when they're ready, we can enroll them in our program and uh, get them to a point of food freedom. Amazing. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. It's been awesome. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Not A Mama Yet. If you enjoyed it, please rate and review an Apple Podcasts and maybe even share it with a friend. Check out the podcast notes for any links we may have mentioned during our conversation, and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thank you for listening.